rise for the gospel. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference for, to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then Jesus said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? And they answered, The emperor's. Then Jesus said to them, Give therefore, give therefore to God, sorry, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left Jesus and went away. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. I invite you all to be seated. So we uh, we have in today's gospel, um, once again, the the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Herodians and all the rest are trying to entrap Jesus by asking him a trick question. And, uh, you know, is it lawful to pay tax to the emperor or not? And and this is a trick question because they knew two things were true. If Jesus said, yes, it is lawful and right for us to pay taxes to the emperor, then the people who were, you know, the citizens of of Israel, the Jewish people in the area who were part of Jesus' crowd would get angry because one, they hadn't been born into Roman into the Roman Empire. They were forced and born into Roman occupation. And so they were angry that Rome was there in the first place. And, and not only that, I'm willing to bet that first century Palestinians like paying taxes about as much as 21st century Americans, which isn't a whole lot. The, the second thing that, that they and Jesus recognize is if Jesus were to say, no, it's not lawful, you know, we, we are under God's law and Rome has no sway with us. The Herodians were there and they were willing to report to the governor of Rome that Jesus said people shouldn't pay taxes. And there's nothing that makes Rome more frustrated than their subjects not wanting to pay taxes. And we all know how Rome takes out their frustrations, and that's with crucifixions and abuse. And... And so Jesus found a, a different way, and he gave a non-answer. It, it's not quite as stunning a non-answer as some of the Senate confirmation hearings that I've heard in my life. But, but it is, like the non-answers that we see there, sometimes more revealing of a person's character than what they might intend, and more intending of their purpose than what they, or more, more indicative of what their purpose is than what they might intend. In this case, I think Jesus gave this answer as a way of demonstrating what his actual purpose was. And it might have been a non-answer in, in some senses, but it was a very clear answer in, in all the other senses. Jesus saying, and I like the old way of saying it, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Um, in part because of the, the word play in English with the word render, you know, we... We use that word not only in terms of give, we also refer to it in cooking and melting down fat. And it reminds me of um, melting down a coin so that you might then mint it, right? And so that rendering word gives a little bit of, of physicality to that phrase. And, and what's clever about that is Jesus is really making a snide remark about the power of Rome, you know, because what Jesus is saying by, well, whose face is that on the coin? You know, and the implication is, well, 
Caesar can put his face on all the coins he wants. And, and Caesar can put his face on whatever the, the first century equivalent of billboards are. And Caesar can have his face carved into all the statues that he wants. But the copper and the gold and the, the stone upon which his face is carved, they all belong to God. And there's not a thing that Caesar can do about it. And, uh, you know, as we, as we are in a stewardship season and we're on the Pledge Sunday where we've been thinking about, you know, how do, how do I respond to the faithfulness of God with my own faithfulness? By, by returning to God a portion of what God has entrusted to me. You know, when, when Joanne was talking about the circles at first service, it reminded me of an old joke. And, uh, you know, the joke is there is a, a priest, a, or a Southern Baptist and a Lutheran pastor and a rabbit standing around. And they were all talking and about how they decide how much of the, their congregation's income to dedicate to the service of the poor. And so the priest says, well, what I like to do is I, I like to draw a circle on the ground and, and throw the money up in the air and whatever lands inside the circle belongs to God. And the Southern Baptist pastor, not to be outdone, says, well, what I do is I draw a circle on the ground and throw the money way up in the air. And, you know, whatever, whatever falls outside the circle belongs to God. And Lutheran pastor says, well, I draw a circle on the ground and throw the money way up in the air and whatever God wants, God keeps. <laughs> And then they all look at the rabbit and the rabbit says, why are you looking at me? I'm only here because of a typo. <laughs> and autocorrect does that to us sometimes, right? And, you know, it, it does get to, the, get to the idea of how is it that we understand what it is we, we do with our resources. And I, I think something that's also universal is that there's not a congregation out there who really feels comfortable talking about stewardship in terms of our finances. You know, we live in a culture where it's not polite to talk about money. We don't share with our coworkers what it is we make. We don't, we, I think sometimes we barely share with our spouses what we make unless we really have to, right? You know, we, we certainly have, have this kind of sense of both faithfulness and guilt about what we give in the church because I, I think there's always an implication during stewardship drives that we feel the conviction, they're just going to tell me again that I'm not giving enough and I don't know if I want to hear that. And I understand that. I feel like that too sometimes, believe it or not. And, and when I have the, the thought process that uh, what, how I feel about my stewardship and how I feel about the way I give my resources, not only of time and talent, but also of treasure to the church, is somehow representative of how good a Christian I am. And, and let's face it, the other thing that we're given by our culture is our culture tells us that a lot of our worth is determined by what we make. You know, we, our, our jobs express value by giving us a raise. They, they tell us how much they'd like to be there by depending on what our starting salary is, right? I mean, it, it very much is a symbol to each of us, even if we don't talk about it. What, what do we make and what do we give? I'd like to suggest a, a pivot from that, though, that our giving isn't about how good a Christian am I. Our giving is a function of our understanding of what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we don't think twice about giving our time or talents. You know, Alice called out and said that she wasn't feeling well this morning and someone stepped right up to read. You know, no one thinks twice about that. And instead of thinking of, of it as a, as a measure of how am I doing or how am I doing in comparison to other people, I, I remember uh, Jesus saying, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus reminds us that where we choose to invest, not just our time, 
even though we're, we see how we spend our time, what our values are, and not just ta our talents, even though we see from the way we use our talents that it describes what our values are. But it is also a, a sense of the things we spend money on are, are things that we come to value, if for no other reason than for the sunk cost fallacy. You know, we, we think uh, sometimes we belong to things for longer than we ever would if we hadn't invested anything of it, in it, because we think to ourselves, well, you know, if I don't stop being a member here now, then if, you know, all that money, all that time and energy that I'll, I've spent in it has been wasted, I might as well keep it up so at least I have something to show for it. But I think getting caught up in that sunk cost fallacy of what I've invested in and what I've done demonstrates something tangible that I get back from it is also not necessarily a great way to think about our stewardship because it really is about what God has given us isn't ours, it all belongs to God. And what we do in response to that is a function of our gratitude, our, a function of our willingness to think about how much of my, how much of what belong, how much of how I identify myself, how much of the wholeness of my being am I investing in, in what God has given me? And, and not because the church needs to pay light bills, even though sometimes we do, you know, but, but it's really because the, the way that I give of myself is, is a way of asking myself the question, how, how am I living out this life to which I feel called? And I, and I think this becomes important when we see our second lesson. And, and this Thessalonians passage is a really interesting one for a couple of reasons. First, because, you know, in, in other passages, in other books or letters that Paul has written, he writes and it feels almost like he says, hi, nice to see you. And oh, by the way, here's the 57 things that you're doing wrong and you need to stop. Paul starts off this letter in, in what I feel like is a much more friendly way by, by saying, you know, I just want to tell you how amazing you are. And not only that, but everybody who talks about you says how amazing you are as well. And Paul talks about how after the time that he spent with these Thessalonians, the, the people he's writing to gave up worshiping their, their idols and their other gods and began worshiping Jesus Christ. And let's think about this for a moment. Remember, I talked about sunk cost, right? And, and sunk cost would, would dictate for me if someone were to tell me, well, yeah, I know that you're worshiping Jesus, but let me tell you about this other thing. There's a piece of me that would say, well, I've worshiped Jesus all my life. I'm not ready to give that up. And, and I would imagine that for these people who were in Thessalonica worshiping the Greek pantheon that they worshiped, you know, they, they must have thought to themselves at some point, well, my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents, they all worshiped, you know, Apollo or whatever they're worshiping, right? So if Apollo is good enough for daddy, it's good enough for me. Then here comes Paul. And, and something Paul says stirs something in them. The other, the other thing that I think is so interesting is uh, as I was thinking about this passage, you know, during our morning Bible studies uh, for Zoom, one of the things that happens since I'm driving a lot during those Bible studies is that I ask the people who are participating to Google things because I can't look them up and, and remember the things that I've forgotten, which is, there's a lot I've forgotten and a lot of things that I've never known. And one of the things we looked up is where Thessalonica is in comparison to where Paul was previously. And remember, Paul was in Philippi prior to going to Thessalonica. And I know what you're sitting there thinking. You're thinking, wow, Philippi, that's, that's the capital of Macedonia. You know, that's, that's the place in Greece that was the seat of the power of Philip of Macedonia. 
and Alexander the Great. And here was Paul in that place preaching and teaching, and they threw him in jail. And good for you to remember all that. And so Paul gets out of jail, and it's, a, it's this big arc and ramping up of the story of Paul in, at that point. And it reminded me of a show that I always used to enjoy called Avatar The Last Airbender, which is animated but fantastic. And every season, right in the middle, when you're getting to the climax of the drama, they would have a beach episode where all the main characters went to the beach and they played and then they found some monster that they had to fight. But everything ended up all happy and they were laughing at the end. And then the next episode was probably the hardest episode of the entire season, right? And, and it reminded me that one year there was a beach episode that didn't involve the protagonist, it involved the antagonist. And one of the antagonists was Azula. Azula was the princess of the Fire Nation and she was intense. Azula was one of those people who, and it was illustrated by the way she showed up at these parties. She was invited to this beach party at her, at her friend's beach house. And they, did, they invited her not thinking that she was going to go and said something to the effect of, I know you don't like to have a lot of fun, and, but I want you to know that we'd love to have you there. And then they left and she said to her friends, I'm not fun. I'm going to go to that party and I'm going to have fun and show them how fun I can be. And you can see already that this is going to work out really well, right? And, and so she goes to the party and she tries to be fun, but because she's so intense, every time she has a conversation with them, after just a couple seconds, they say, wow, it sure is good to see you. I'm going to go over there where you're not. And finally, the end of the episode is that she's gotten so frustrated, she ends up accidentally burning the whole house down and then shrugs her shoulders and walks away, right? And, and the reason it made me think of this is when we look at the places where Paul goes, we see a couple of things happen. One is that there are conversions to, to following Jesus, whether they're people who had previously been Jews or whether they're people who had previously been Gentiles. You know, they, they leave, but, you know, and, and you think how significant this is. If you're a Jewish person, all of a sudden you believe the Messiah has come. If you're a Gentile, you leave behind your old religion and you turn to the new religion, right? And there, there must have been something about Paul that was, that was just so intense and so moving and so powerful that this happened everywhere he went. But the reason I thought about Azula, the Fire Nation princess, is because there's also an intensity to Paul. And we see something else happen in a lot of places he goes. He goes and he preaches and he teaches and people convert. And then they either throw him in jail to stop him from making trouble or they run him out of town on a rail or both, right? And, and so here's Paul after having had kind of a series of, of, of events where he's had both good luck and bad luck. And one thing I learned on Thursday morning is that Thessalonica is a mountain town. Now, isn't that interesting? Why do we go to the mountains? You know, we go to the mountains for rest, for restoration, to, to enjoy the views and to hike and to and enjoy our time there and maybe enjoy some of the local culture because if you spend a lot of time in mountain towns, you realize that a lot of that culture kind of grew up in isolation. And so those towns are at once some of the, the most kind of exclusive places we see because they're very protective of their culture. But if you're in, man, you are in, right? And they can also be some of the most loving and welcoming places in the world too. And so Paul sees the mountains. And I believe he was saying to his friends, Timothy and Sylvanus, why don't we go there and we can catch a break? Or maybe it's just as likely that they were saying to Paul, why don't we go there and you take a break, right? And so Paul goes up to the mountains, I think, 
This is my theory. There's nothing that, that backs this up. So this is the gospel according to Eric, but I really like the way this, I like the way this story flows, right? But Paul gets there and Paul is Paul and there's a small synagogue there. He spends three weekends preaching and teaching on, in the synagogue. And somehow while he's there, these people who become the church of Thessalonians, you know, the Thessalonian church convert from worshiping their idols into worshiping Jesus. And this, and then he gets run out of town like normal. But again, you know, there, what is it about Paul? And, and I'm thinking about all these things that we've talked about so far. And it reminds me that there, there's something powerful about people's stories that, that, you know, causes people to come to faith. You know, in the South, when we have the Southern Baptists, all my friends when we were in high school would periodically, who were Southern Baptists, would come to me periodically and say, I was baptized this weekend. Let me tell you my testimony. And if that word isn't necessarily familiar for you, for you a testimony oftentimes is, let me tell you about how, how bad my life was. And then I found Jesus and I got better. You know, I, I was on drugs and I stopped. Or I was, you know, I was womanized and all of a sudden Jesus reminded me that I wouldn't, I shouldn't do that and I stopped or whatever it was, right? And, and I always felt weird because I didn't really have a testimony to share like that. But, you know, you think about Paul's story. You know, Paul being, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Paul saying, you know, if anyone's to brag about what they have in God, it's me because I was born in the tribe of Benjamin. By faith, I was a Pharisee. In terms of zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. You know, and then he talks about how when he found Jesus, everything shifted. And all of a sudden he realized all the things that he had to brag about were actually rubbish by comparison. And then think about Paul's conversion story, how this happened. He was out persecuting Christians. And then Jesus appeared to him and a blinding light knocked him off his horse and he could no longer see. And Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, this was a big conversion. His name changed in the same way that we think of Abram and Sarai. Their names change, you know. He went to Ananias and he rubbed mud on Paul's eyes and all of a sudden he was able to see. And I imagine the story, Paul, and I, I would love nothing better than to hear Paul preach and to tell these stories. I imagine this story is something along the lines of, and when he rubbed mud on my eyes and, and rubbed it off, not only had God opened the eyes of my head, but God had opened the eyes of my heart. And I was able to see that what Christ is doing in me is something that not only could not be undone and something I could never merit or ask for, not only what Christ is doing for me through his death and his resurrection and recognizing the power of Christ and him crucified, that it changed my life, but it changed everything about the way I understand the world. And let me tell you about how Jesus can open the eyes of your heart too. Because when you recognize the love of God that comes through Christ Jesus, nothing can ever be the same. I wasn't there, but I imagine Paul's story and maybe something along those lines could have been what Paul was sharing that convinced people so clearly that they needed to leave behind everything that they had believed and pick up faith in Jesus. It's amazing when you think about what that must have been like. And then, you know, it draws me back to thinking about this coin that Jesus was holding. You know, this coin that was minted somewhere. And what was minted on Paul by his culture was a very specific set of beliefs and circumstances. What's minted onto us by our culture is a very specific set of beliefs and circumstances. But what we learn through the waters of baptism is that the world can put as deep a mark as it wants onto our hearts, but all the stuff we're made of belongs to God. And, and through the waters of baptism, something interesting happens. 
I'm reminded of those machines at the zoo or national parks where you put 51 cents in and keeps the 50 cents but moves the penny into the crank. Then you crank the penny and it comes out the other side and it's stretched out and now it has like Riverbank Zoo on it or whatever, you know, Sequoia National Park. And, you know, what, what's interesting to me about, to me about that is that uh, on the one hand, you know, we think about the striking of the coin that, that put the original imprint of, of what we see that the government tells us is worth something. If it's a penny, it's Abraham Lincoln, right? But I imagine my face is the one that's on the coin that's been struck. And there's an interesting thing about the love of God. When, when the crank turns, it, it doesn't completely erase the face of Abraham Lincoln. All of a sudden, when you see the coin is stretched out, you can see where those lines used to be and you can see the profile of Abe's nose and all the rest of it. The love of God doesn't annihilate what we were before or who we were before. But the love of God so transforms how we understand ourselves through the waters of baptism that everything old has passed away. And we see what the truth is, that the surest signs of God's presence are new creation. And, you know, as we, as we think about what that means for us today and for our lives, you know, we all have our story to tell. We all have that story about what, what Christ has done in our lives and what it means to follow Jesus. We all have those parts of our stories where following Jesus seems like something that's kind of weird and foreign. Those parts of our lives where following Jesus feels like it's probably the most important thing we've ever come across because that's just the way our human attention span works. As, as we think, think about what it means to be stewards of our time and our talents and our treasures, I encourage you to think about what has God minted on your heart and we give our time and our talents and our treasures not because we're, we're supposed to feel guilty about what we didn't do, but because there's something that God does in our lives that causes everything within us to change and causes us to live in ways we never would have imagined living, causes us to give of ourselves in ways we would never otherwise give because the surest sign of God's presence is new creation. And we're called to live into that. Amen.